Hello, my name's Paul Govan. Welcome to the very first Game People podcast. Each week, we'll be bringing a collection of writers from the website to look at a particular video game series. Come and join the gang of reviewing artisans. See it from every angle. This week, we're going to be looking at The Legend of Zelda, and I've got a collection of niche video game writers from the website to take us through it. Let me get to them straight away, actually. How about you guys introduce yourself? Alex. Hi, I'm Alex Beach. Uh, I write the Scared Gamer column on Game People. I live in Japan teaching English currently. Okay, how about David, you introduce yourself? Uh, my name's David Kenson, and I write the Sports Gamer column for Game People. I'm an academic, but I write reviews from the perspective of a sportsman and where relevant talking about how accurate or immersive games are in comparison to real life experience. And John? Hi, I'm John Seddon, uh, I write the Dress Up Gamer column. My interest comes from writing about the role I played within games, which is what Dress Up Game is all about. And Mark? I'm Mark Clapper, I write the Story Gamer column for Game People. My background is that I am a novelist and writer. I've written for uh, the BBC's Doctor Who books, and I write reviews based around my sort of professional understanding of storytelling. So there we are. That's our little band of writers this week. And each week we're going to be getting different people in who write for Game People, each with different niche perspectives and we're going to be looking at a particular video game series. This week, the series we've got for you is The Legend of Zelda. We're going to take a chronological trip through them at first, I think, uh, which starts with Legends of Zelda. Um, so who wants, who wants to kick us off? Who's, who's played that? Well, I, I played it last year, actually, on the GBA, on the, when they mm-hmm. released them. Oh, yeah? I picked that up in Japan, and uh, fortunately there isn't as much speaking as in most of the other games, because I was worried that I wouldn't have a damn clue what was going on. Yeah. As it turned out, it's mostly just, they just leave you in the middle of this huge 8-bit environment, and you find your own way. It's very different to the, where I actually started playing the series, which mm-hmm. was uh, Link to the Past, yeah. which was very linear, and they guided you through it. This was far more a kind of... Yeah, open world kind of maze. Mm-hmm. I think maybe I, I lost out on the fact that I didn't have a room full of eight-year-old friends also playing it. Yeah. Or if I played it when it originally came out, it's yeah. There's that kind of shared experience of the older games, the shared route through them and helping each other. Yeah. That I was definitely, I definitely felt was lacking when I played it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Cool. I, I I played it uh, via the virtual console. Um, like probably about a year ago um, mm-hmm. and again it was sort of like you know that fascination about where this series had come from mm-hmm. and it there's there's so many things that have changed since those games were made and it's it just feels so hard um, you know the simple things like not being able to run in eight directions and yeah, it really. just sort of it just makes it so much harder to actually you know even start getting your head around yeah and I think Part of it was that, well, part of it for me was that the NES, when it in its heyday, was big and much bigger in the states than it was in the UK. By the time it got big here, I think I'd sort of moved on to sort of the next generation, which was coming out. 
I didn't. I, I knew one person who had one, and Rob the Robot, which was... Oh, yeah, really? In the, and that was in the UK, was it, Alex? Yeah, yeah. That was uh, near my old house, but uh, yeah. it was... Yeah, nobody ever really went around to play. It wasn't, it wasn't the same kind of experience that you hear about American friends having. Yeah. Just talk to me about that. I had one friend who had an NES, I remember, but he oh, yeah. only ever wanted to play um, Duck Hunt. The <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Well, perhaps he was ahead of his time, because obviously that's like a sort of Wii, Wii style interface, isn't so it? Just, just pointing. Yeah. 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 What, what's, he, what's he playing now? <laughs> so NES days sort of pass us by, and then, um, what is it? The, S, the SNES stuff is um, A Link to the Past, isn't it? Who played that? It's like the only SNES Zelda game. It's the first one. It's the yeah. only one, I think. Yeah, I think it's because Ocarina of Time Ocarina of is time N64. Well. Say again? Ocarina of no, Time. No, Ocarina of Time was N64. Oh, was it? Yeah, I think so. And yeah. Link... yeah. But they then what's... Then you're right, getting confused. Link's Awakening was they... Game Boy, wasn't it, as well? Yeah, which was yeah. Awakening. In between, yeah. which is enough, which was one I played. But again, played by going back to it. Um, and I think... Well, because I, I was a kind of early adopter of the original Game Boy and really liked it. Played lots of Tetris, uh, tennis and... Um, games like that, but never really realised that there was a like a proper Zelda game that I could play there, and probably because I hadn't quite twigged what the franchise was all about. I'd played, I'd played the Game & Watch games, I'd played, um, but there was a Zelda one, and I played um, Donkey Kong Jr., and so I was in that sort of Nintendo mindset, but I hadn't, they hadn't communicated, I guess, that, um, that you know, that, that there was an onward progression. So did anyone play Link's Awakening originally on the SNES? Um, yes, I, I played that. Um, I didn't. Uh, I didn't own a SNES, so it was a case of um, playing at a, at a friend's house. But yeah, I played it quite a lot um, at one particular friend's house. Uh, I, I grabbed it on the Super Nintendo when it came out. Actually, it was it converted me to the franchise immediately. It was magical back yeah. at, at that point. Yeah, it starts you off in your, your grandfather, your uncle's house, your grandfather's house. Can't mm-hmm. remember. Not that magical, maybe. Uh, but it's a rainy night. You're alone. Yeah. You've got no weapons. Yeah. You have to find your un- uncle or grandfather, or whatever it may be, in a castle. And there's no way in. You've got to f- break into the castle. Like, most clearly now, what I, comes back to me is I got stuck in one dungeon, and without a guide or anything, I decided to call the Nintendo hotline. <laughs> and I sat there waiting, it was engaged, first they had me on hold, then finally I got through and I got to ask my questions, like, I'm stuck, I can't open this door, I can't find any keys anywhere, and the advice the guy gave me was, just look around for a key, and then he hung up. <laughs> really? <laughs> and you probably paid about £5 to get to that point, hadn't you? Yeah, it's like so a so premium rate line. Did you ask the uh, bill-paying adult for permission? <laughs> did I? <yet>? <laughs> <laughs> um, they found out soon enough, though. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think like what you're saying is really interesting, Alex, because it's 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 those sorts of experiences that we remember as kids that then you know that hooks us in to playing those games. And I think a lot of the reasons that I play games now is because it sort of um, re- is a chance to revisit my childhood and it's a chance to revisit those experiences that um, were sort of formative to me. And speaking with my sort of family gamer hat on, um, I noticed that's that's the sort of thing I'm I'm trying to create for my kids is trying to work out what are the games now that they're going to have which are going to become formative. Can I recommend a link to the past? Then just get that for the virtual console and throw them in. Yeah, you think? I know it looks. Yeah, it, I still think it. I think it holds up because, like 
I picked it up again on GBA, and I know I don't know how much of it was nostalgia, but it it still is incredible to me. Mm. Just as a as a game world and the things you are asked to do within it, and it's nice and simple. So. Mm-hmm. How about from somebody who likes sort of scary games? Anything? So there's two worlds, in, if people haven't played, there's two worlds that are linked to the past. And uh, once you go through the dark mirror, you're in this dark alternate world. And at one point you go back to the forest where the Master Sword was kept, and there's a dungeon where there's just a hand that drops from the ceiling and drags, drags you all the way back to the start of the dungeon. And it's really tough getting through it. And every time you see the shadow that's about to grab you, I used to panic. Total, total, just yeah. shut down. I was gra- dragged out of there so many times by the hand that... Yeah. Yeah. Still yeah. It's interesting. Days. Yeah. So there's, it's interesting how that maybe that sort of foreshadowed a sort of a, an interest in games that unsettled you. <laughs> I, I don't know if this would count as something um, that the sort of scared gamer would be interested in, but one of the things, one of the dynamics that's always been a play for me, playing the Zelda games has been the the, the difference or the contrast between the being in the dungeons and being outside, and something relating to claustrophobia I, and I, I always got the feeling playing Zelda when I was deep into the dungeon that there was something slightly unerring about being confined within these spaces and having to move from one space to the next and, um, it's a bit like the cube or something and then the the absolute relief of them being thrown out from the dungeon into this world where you can just swoosh around your sword and go through the grass and do whatever you want and no one's really bothering you that kind of contrast for me has always been really important um, playing the Zelda games I hadn't really thought about it but you, you're absolutely right the kind of especially when you're in the dungeon they do that kind of visual cue where you're, you are suddenly blocked in and when you're in the open world it is bright comparatively and that might even be why I found that dungeon with the hand even more scary because when it dragged you out it dragged you out into a really dark foggy forest in the dark world so I don't think it was even released when it threw me outside and um, one thing for me I, I much prefer the dungeons in Zelda games to the open world bit in between I know that other people I've talked to people like uh, Phil because I, I, I always felt I don't know almost a, not dread but just that kind of oh no not another dungeon <laughs> really? yeah. we should have teamed up because I had the same thing about about the open world because it's just with the dungeon, for me, I know where I am, and I guess, again, with my sort of family gamer hat on, I know that there's a sort of distinct amount of time of how long it's going to take me to get through this, and it's, it's, all, it's an enclosed puzzle, um, and it's something that I can solve, just given a certain set sort of session with the game. But when I'm in the open world, um, it's like, well, where do I go? And often it's, often it's, say I've missed a particular clue, it feels like I could be wandering around for hours and hours um, without actually sort of making the progress I should be making. So I think that on, on that, that that's why for me the dungeons were there. But John, what so what was it about the the open world that you love? Um, well, I felt like more like I, I was in control of, of what I was doing. I never felt that I was going to get lost. I think it's the sort of yeah. You know, I sort of like felt quite safe out there, uh, and I I can't really recall the 2D ones that well but I can remember you know just always getting lost and it, it's partly to do with I guess like the, the distinctness of the actual environments yeah you could have called the Nintendo helpline <laughs> I would have told you 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I, I probably played them like sort of a couple of years ago, so I'm not sure. Does it even actually exist? Probably <laughs> <laughs> not. But it's, it's, that's interesting, John, because um, we're both saying almost the same thing about we were both worried of the frustration of missing a key element. But I, for me, I was more worried about that outside, where, whereas you were more, that was more an issue for you when you were in the dungeons. Um, well, you seem to play on a handheld when you played this, and it, I only mm. wonder if you had the volume up, because I think the sound might make a big difference, because the sound in the open world is really just calming and mm-hmm. majestic, whereas inside there's just the tension, <laughs> yeah. and I wonder yeah. if that might have made a yeah, difference. Yeah, the creeping. Yeah, and it's interesting that by having, let, what you're saying there, by having less visuals, less, less of that work done for you, your imagination is given sort of more license to, to create yeah, your own I mean, world. You, it kind of had to sort of invent some of it. Yeah, because it, I mean, I think that's a, a lot of what, you know, what we are as people is we're very good at filling in the gaps and something that, um, you know, the, the the more technically advanced games get, the fewer gaps there are for us to, to fill. And so, yeah, and I, I think as well, sort of, um, because it was on a portable, it was, uh, you can remember places you were when you played it. Yeah. yeah you know what I mean? It's, it's, I can remember sitting in a cubicle in a toilet in a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I was just essentially just trying to find some space, private space to yeah. play my Game Boy. Yeah, for, for me, I, I think Link's Awakening on the Game Boy was not only um, my favourite of the Zelda games. It's one of the most important computer games I ever played. I mean, I can remember mm-hmm. first getting my... Game Boy, and that that was something of a concession on behalf of my mother. She wasn't particularly um, wasn't particularly up for it. But then I can't remember what happened, but some something happened whereby I managed to get this Game Boy, and that was a that was a big triumph. Um, and I basically took it everywhere with me. And I, I mean, talking about places that you remember playing games, I can very clearly remember playing Link's Awakening. Um, all day on a Saturday when my mum and my sister would go shopping and I would just follow them around from, from women's shop to women's shop, just sitting in a corner playing Link's Awakening um, <laughs> yeah. with the headphones in and the Game Boy pushed up as close to my face as I could possibly get it yeah. and just immersing myself in that, in that world in order to escape the drudgery of, of shopping um, and that was incredibly important for me and I, and I think, um, I think it was Alex mentioned it in relation to the last game the, the sound of the game was one of the most important aspects of that. You know, I think um, Zelda games for me have always had, along with probably the Mario franchise, some of the most exciting and evocative um, computer game soundtracks. And those those sounds, even though there's quite stripped down sound effects on the Game Boy, they've really stayed with me in a, in a strange mm. and interesting way, actually. Mm-hmm. I actually remember being on a dark car journey and it got to the point where the flickering street lights were no longer enough to allow me to play the game so I just listened to the intro music over and over again <laughs> yeah, really? yeah, <laughs> you had <laughs> to get, had to get your fix yeah. Yeah, yeah, it goes really into the kind of Zelda refrain towards the end the other thing I clearly remember about Link's Awakening was um, probably in order to escape that claustrophobic feeling of the dungeons I can remember playing some of the mini games um, just over and over again I think there was a, there was a fishing mini game 
where you basically just um, got rupees for for fish that you caught to spend in the shop. And I think another one with a with a waterfall of some kind. I can't remember if you surfed down it or something mm-hmm. like you had to get get down this waterfall. And mm. I, I just remember playing that over and over again, and just getting to the bottom and then walking all the way back up to the top and doing it again. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling me about this, David. Wasn't that? Well, didn't you play that so much that you ended up getting stuck because you used all your money playing that that one, paying for those rides again and again? And so yeah, you, I think so. Right? I, I, I got to the stage where I was like, well, I don't really know what I can do here because I think I'd, um, I think I'd, the shop had closed or something and I couldn't redeem any of the whatever I had that I was would have been able to redeem for rupees. And mm. I, I think I got to the point where I, I had to just walk around the level cutting up grass to try and find yeah. rupees to get the thing that I needed to um, yeah. to progress in the game because I'd spent so much time riding on this silly mini game and yeah. it really almost jeopardized the whole thing <laughs> yeah that's cool let me bring let me bring Mark in on this so um because I'd love to hear what your take is on the Zelda games from us particularly from a story perspective which games did you play well it's very interesting for me listening to everybody's anecdotes because as somebody who came to the series entirely as an adult, I mean, I think I played 10 minutes of uh, hitting chickens with a sword on um, A Link to the Past on somebody's snares, but I really, the first, um, the first uh, Nintendo platform I seriously played on was the GameCube a few mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. So my experience is of the controversial inverted commas, cartoony link of The Wind Waker and yeah. more recently um, Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks yeah. rather than any of the others. Relatively interesting thing from a story mm-hmm. perspective yeah. is that uh, there are, if you take it, there are two type of, two main sort of types of game series stories. There are, are ones where there is a continuing story throughout the separate installments and then there's games like uh, mainly Nintendo games, where essentially it's the same story repeated again and again. Uh, the mm. Legend of Zelda is is treated as a legend. It's, it's Link's story is retold, and there's the boy, there's the sword, there's the princess, and mm. there's a different spin on it every time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And particularly, I think those sorts of, like, looking at it as a legend, I think... You, you can, it can sound a bit grandiose, but as soon I think as soon as they took, if they had a Zelda game and it was missing one of the key elements of the moment you find the sword or the way that chests open, or and for me, it's the moment you get your your green cloak. So if if Link started, you know, with that already and already with a sword and didn't have to go through that that process of sort of earning his right to um to be the hero, uh, I think that the legend for me wouldn't work. I mean, I think they, I, I think that's that's one of the conscious and clever things about the series is the that reinterpretation that each instalment is exactly the same but completely different. It's a different there's often two worlds but they're the spin on that is different. Um, there's often a form of transport but sometimes it's the sea, sometimes it's a train mm. uh, sometimes it's some form of magical device and it keeps the sort of the strength of that that core story of the the young boy going on the adventure intact, uh, while growing it at the same time, mm. and allowing that sort of intergenerational thing where uh, new generations of gamers can keep finding it. And I, you know, I certainly when I played the Wind Waker for the first time, 
I was not, I, I knew it was a long-running series, but it was not like jumping in on season season four of a TV show. It was yeah. completely fresh. Yeah. And that meant you, I think once you've played any of the Zelda games, you can then, because you know the story and you know the formula, it's quite, it's quite easy and quite tempting then to go back and think, oh, what was the Game Boy version like? Or, and, you know, that's what some of us were saying we've done as we've revisited these. On, um, is I, I have been intending to go back to the Ocarina of Time. I've owned it on two formats already and yeah. never quite got round to it. I mean, the Ocarina of Time, I think, we'd, we'd be remiss to talk about Zelda without spending a little bit of our conversation looking in detail at that. So why, it, it stands out in most people's books as the sort of the, the epitome of a Zelda game, the perfect Zelda game. Um, what was it about it that made it the sort of the perfect Zelda? The sheer amount of time people had to wait between that and mm-hmm. the previous game. I think it was sort of over five years. And then it was then it was the first time that it obviously gone 3D. It invented lots of things that have become pretty standard, you know, like uh, holding a button to target an enemy. And, and, and yeah, but uh, I guess that's the, the mechanics and the moving to 3D is a good point. Um, but like, you know, you have games like Goldeneye, and people talk about going back and playing that, and of it, of it sort of shattering childhood happy memories because they go back and revisit it, and it's like, oh, it isn't quite as amazing as I thought it was. And that was, I think, because it was the first of its type. When you first experienced it, it was amazing. Was there anything about the game itself you think that was a particularly good example of a Zelda game? For me, it was strangely unimpactful. Actually, I think it was partly my own fault. I- was so excited I played through it far too quickly. Yeah. And I think I've just kind of smeared all of the memories into one kind of mess at yeah. some point in that equation. And I remember the sword in the church mm-hmm. and then double crosses and going through a forest, but the actual story is really indistinct for me. I don't know. When all the others sit so kind of clearly in my mind, it's really strange to me that that's the one that is so blurry because I remember playing it fondly. And I, and I don't think, you know, actually, as an experience, it's an enormous amount of fun. Uh, I, I don't remember that much about it, and I didn't enjoy it enormously. And I didn't, I didn't really enjoy the story or anything about it. Yeah, that's quite, a, that's quite a statement, isn't it? So it's sort of, because that's not really saying it's a classic Zelda game. It's just saying it's the one that came out when they got it right. I think mm. most people would probably disagree with me, but um, it just it just really didn't do anything for me from that point of view. Mm. How, how old were you when you played it? I just I wonder if this is going to be a fact because I think a lot of the love for it is from people who I would say are probably the age I was when I played A Link to the Past. Because I think I was a little old. I think I'd already passed that kind of era when you form nostalgia. And I think that's a, that is a very strong force in Zelda. I mean, I can't deny that maybe my love of Link to the Past is founded basically on the fact I played it when I did in my life. Yeah. And for me, that's sort of part of a good good storytelling, I guess, is part of sort of invoking the legend is, is being able to get us to revisit those memories, but not just to say that was what we did back then, but saying, oh, and we're doing that now as well. I think with the right game and the right format, I, I think you could definitely... Uh, you can definitely get involved in it. I mean, I played a tremendous amount of the Phantom Hourglass a couple of years ago when that came out. Uh, the difference, I think, is that 
if you're a kid or if you're at university as well, um, you have that time to batter around in that giant world, um, revisiting dungeons and slashing down every blade of grass and um, pushing every corner. And the reason that I've ground to a halt on the last couple of Zelda games I've played is nothing to do with not enjoying them. It's quite simply the fact that I put it aside for a month and I can't remember where I was supposed to be going when I was uh, playing it last. And they still have that. So they have a bit more direction than they used to, but they they still have that sort of that aspect of striking into the unknown and working your way towards the core of a dungeon through a complex means. And if you leave it for a few weeks and forget it, what you were supposed to be doing and how you use the boomerang to hit the magic statue and all that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing yeah. that you learn if you're playing a game day day in day out um, they can be a little bit tough to get back into i mean i think that's that's possibly their the challenge for an older player is just not having that um amount of time to uh, commit to it yeah it's, uh, i suppose that is the thing with zelda they're, they're quite sort of like walking sheep's clothing because they look on the face of it um you know in, inviting sort of you know hand-holding um I don't say easy, but you know, certainly not not hardcore in in any respect. But they do absolutely. Mm. In particular, um, relation to Ocarina of Time, I remember feeling a little bit um, deceived by it almost because I think it was the first game that introduced um, the the sort of um, side missions or or. Um, it was more than just mini games. There were sort of um, mm. quests, side quests that you could go yeah. on yeah, that remember. you didn't quite know how they related to the to the story. And I remember um, possibly again coming back to this idea of trying to avoid the dungeons as much as possible. I remember investing quite a lot of time in some of these side quests. Yeah, there is a surprisingly heavy focus in Zelda on um, keeping your lawn tidy, and I don't know whether this is some some great moral at the heart of the series that children are supposed to be learning that cutting grass is fun. But there is there is definitely a, a very surprising focus on that. But it's interesting, David, to hear you talk about, um, you know, how you sort of felt, you know, compelled to do all these sort of side fetch quests, which I, I sort of, I attribute to your sort of, you know, your sports competitive um, persona there that, uh, look, for you when you played it, they weren't, they weren't technically optional that as you went through, you wanted to do all the, all the quests in order. Whereas for somebody else who would play it, um, would perhaps just ignore those and sort of go through the game as a whole and and uh, have a very different experience, which again brings us to, you know to the, the point we were making earlier that your experience of these games will be very much determined by when you play them and also the sort of person you are. Which for me is what is interesting about game people because we get to hear all your all your opinions of a game without trying to be definitive and say like we started this conversation by saying Ocarina of Time is supposed to be the classic Zelda of all time. Now that's maybe true but only for a, a certain set of people at a certain time of their lives. So um, it's really interesting to hear how the, the conversation sort of developed there. Let's, um, let's jump on. We've got um, Skyward Sword um, on Horizon for the Wii um, as well as revisiting Ocarina of Time on um, the 3DS when it, when it lands. Um, what are people's hopes for those games? What will get you either back into Zelda or what do you want them to revisit? Or Having seen the demonstration, uh, the demonstration at E3 that uh, Miyamoto mm -hmm. did at first, Skyward Sword, 
uh, it just seems tremendously exhausting, especially if you're going to have to go and cut every blade of grass by uh, jumping around waving the motion plus. Yeah. It could be tremendously involving. It could also just be a recipe for repetitive strain injury. Well, there does seem to be a sort of a slight look over the shoulder in that if you look at the look at the visual here and look at the visual of Twilight Princess, they sort of seem to be trying to blend the two, but it's not cell shaded in Skyward Sword, okay. but it, there is uh, like a cartoony sort of feel to it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a watercolor type uh, yeah. aesthetic to it, rather. And I, uh, I didn't play. A bit, of an, a bit of an Akami, a bit of an Akami type mm. thing. Skyward Sword probably, probably is going to count as the first Zelda to be sort of properly, fully developed, with yeah. the Wii in mind, and yeah. certainly, certainly with the advantage of Motion Plus and that sort of improved version of the Wii control system. Yeah. And that, I think that's my hope for it, is that the Motion Plus is used properly in that, because what you were describing, Mark, of, of that, um, that really Motion Plus isn't about large swinging motions, that the acceleration of the controller is what they could already detect. Motion Plus is about <clears throat> the, the gyroscope that can detect, detect orientation, so you don't have to do so much pointing with the, with the infrared. So I'm hoping that rather than increasing the amount of jumping around you have to do, like he was showing on stage, actually you probably have to do a lot less because it will pick up the subtle movements. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not something that we has, of the games I've played on the Wii, I've played the sports games, obviously, and there aren't that many of these um, big in-depth sort of adventure experiences. There's the, there's the platformers, but they've, it's not really been used that much for things like Zelda, for... Mm. Um, very long adventure RPG games, so uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what they do. I was just going to say, I don't know how anyone else feels about this, but I was never particularly attracted to um, Twilight Princess on the Wii, just because I felt as if actually the the interface for me changed the way that I related to the Zelda game too much. I, I don't think I ever, playing Zelda games, I ever really related to Link particularly closely. Like I never imagined that I was Link and I was doing these things. In fact, almost the opposite. Part of a kind of distancing of myself from him was part of what I enjoyed about the game. But the idea mm -hmm. of having a kind of sword and, and being Link and kind of slashing around never really appealed to me. And that's, that's part of the reason why I never particularly um, invested any time in, in Twilight Princess. Have you played? Have you played either of the DS games, David? Because the control system on the DS, the, the stylus, um, does the exact opposite. Because you're not actually directly controlling Link, you're clicking where he's going. Yeah. And you're actually guiding him through and you're guiding the course of his weapons. Mm. And you don't actually, apart from inventory stuff, I don't think you directly deal with Link, you tap him to get the inventory, but otherwise... So have you played those? What I've seen of them, they invoked much more for me of, of what I felt like Zelda is supposed to be. Whereas, yeah, playing Twilight Princess it just felt a bit like uh, suddenly there's something about this experience that, I don't know, it doesn't seem as, I don't know, interestingly, for me it was actually less fulfilling because it was sort of stripping a rich mythological type experience down to a kind of, all right, well now I have to do all these motions and kind of do everything. I think Miyamoto's vision won't allow them to give us both options, to be honest. I think he's, he believes in it so strongly that yeah. that's what we're going to get. 
Yeah, no, that's quite compelling for me. I quite like the idea of someone saying, look, it's designed to be played this way. We've committed and we've put all our money into making this work rather than hedging our bets. But obviously that is kind of strange because there will limit, you know, there'll be some people who like that and some people who won't. Great. Well, I think, I think we've covered that pretty well. Is there anything else we should be touching on? Let's wrap this up then. Thanks for all your time. And um, thank, thanks everybody else for, for listening. Um, if you want to get in touch, you can email podcast at gamepeople.co.uk or you can like our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash gamepeople um, or follow us on Twitter at game underscore people. And um, we will have more niche-focused artisan opinions on Resident Evil for you in a couple of weeks' time. Goodbye.